What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Clee Talk presented by FenleyRoadSports.com. Happy Halloween to everyone out there. Um, this being a podcast, I can assure you that we are in basically Hollywood authentic uh, Star Wars costumes, Chris and I. Um, it's a shame you guys can't see it and it's just an audio podcast. But uh, with me, as always, hosting this podcast is my older brother, Chris. Chris, what's going on, man? I had to take off my Stormtrooper helmet. It wasn't a very good costume idea because I've got to talk on the on the podcast here. So I didn't think that went through. Yeah, my, my Darth Vader voice modulator is, is off right now just for the sake of the podcast. But rest assured, every I'm in full gear. Rogue yes. One, baby. It's coming. <laughs> Can't wait. I, I think that might be better than the episode nine. Yeah, episode no, wasn't it episode seven? Seven. Sorry. Yeah. It's all good. There, there there's a lot of them. It's it's kind of confusing. But episode seven was solid. But I agree, I'm very excited for Rogue One. But I'm more excited yeah. for something else, Bob. In the more immediate future. Yeah, look, yeah, the, the the past week has been crazy. You know, we re recorded uh last week's podcast uh a day before the World Series kicking off. One week later, we're recording. The Indians have a three to two lead coming back to Progressive Field for game six and a potential game seven uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. Chris, I mean, I can't say I this is unbelievable because the Indians have defied belief for the past two rounds and are, are, we're in the World Series. I mean, of course, they were going to compete and play games, but this has. I couldn't have asked for a better scenario right now. I am on cloud nine. It's been a great week. Yeah, neither could I. I mean, I, I think deep down, you always want your team to win at home. Well, well, first off, you always want your team to win. And then the icing on top of that is you want them to win at home. So, you know, all these all these fans wanted Cleveland to clinch at home. Well, in order for that to happen, they had to lose twice because you, you obviously can't have a two-game sweep. So you have to come back and win it in either game six or seven. Um, so as down as that game five was for a lot of people, because because I think that there was a combination of emotions. You know, you you you, you want to have that home field win, but you also feel like you might be getting a little too greedy, hoping for them to lose to get that home field win. You know what I mean? So so I think there's a combination oh, yeah. of excitement and nervousness. Uh, especially given what the Cleveland Cavaliers just did in June in a sport where it's much tougher to come back from a 3-1 deficit because that game five is at the higher seeds site. But you're right, Bob. This this entire week has just been fantastic. To, to host the World Series, the energy in downtown on Tuesday, when the Cavs also raised their championship banner, was, was unbelievable. Uh, the game one of the World Series had a higher TV viewership than game seven of the NBA finals. I saw somewhere. So Cleveland as a city is just on a tremendous run right now. Uh, Beyond sports, there's a lot happening downtown. Things are starting to liven up again. It is an exciting time to be in the city of Cleveland, to be a Cleveland fan and to be part of this and so, you know, I agree with you. I'm going to look at the glass half full here. They're up 3-2. Even though they're coming off a loss, uh, they have a chance to, to to do something truly special and, and win a championship in front of their home crowd. Yeah, definitely. And before we dive into some of these games, I mean, 
whoever out there is wanting Cleveland to win, not only win a World Series, but win at home. I mean, gosh, we were just four months ago complaining about just winning a title, and now we're trying to have our cake and eat it too. I mean, let's uh, let's just take what we got. I mean, I wanted to win 100% on game five. I, I would take a sweep. So I, I get like it's it's nicer and more fun to, to win your championship at home, but uh, come on, guys, let's uh, let's not get greedy here and get a little overconfident. Because as soon as um, the Indians started to pull ahead in Game Four to take the three-one lead, you know, I turned to my fiance. I was like, "This is going to be some serious Cleveland karma going up three-one against these Cubs and the Cavs." in the reverse of that situation just a f- few months ago. I mean, if Cleveland is cursed, uh, we're in some, f- for some serious hurt, hurt right now. If the curse is broken, then certainly we're, we're in a good spot, but, uh, man, that would be some serious karma. If, if Cleveland blows this, which I don't think is going to happen and we'll, we'll definitely dive into that. But, um, yeah, as soon as I saw that the possibility of going up three, one happened, I was like, Oh man, that's, uh, <laughs> That's uh that's Cleveland of old uh prime prime uh narrative for for old Cleveland. So hopefully that stuff is all gone, all that juju's gone. Um but yeah, it's it's been fantastic. I mean, Tuesday night what what a great start Corey Kluber coming out and, and pitching that shutout and the Indians, you know, handedly winning that game. Um in between though, runs have been uh few and far between uh save for that game four explosion. Uh the Tribe you know, is dealing in, with those tight margins again, walking the tightrope with their bullpen, get a lead and just, you know, throw your big guns out there and, and, and win, uh, and, and don't give up any runs, but, uh, it, it's been really exciting and, and been really fantastic to watch so far. Did your heart skip like seven beats when Mike Napoli botched that play in game three with two outs in yes. the bottom of the ninth? I think everyone's Cleveland, yes. everyone's heart in Cleveland stopped beating for at least five seconds there. Because it's not just the play. I mean, it's it's shades of '86. Uh, Bill Buckner, the Red Sox. You know, obviously not nearly as bad because it, it still would have only been a one-two deficit. But but then they steal second, and they're in both in scoring position. One hit wins the game for the Cubs, and Cody Allen comes through, strikes him out. So obviously everything was cool. But that that was a very tense moment. And then Game 5 was full of tense moments. I mean, that game could have gone either way. Uh, really, the Tribe only had that one bad inning there where, you know, Bauer was a little shaky. But other than that, they, they played fine. And, and they certainly, the offense certainly had multiple opportunities to, to tie the game. Uh, just like in Game 3 uh, on the other side when the Cubs um, had multiple opportunities. So, so obviously, I mean, either team could be up 3-2 right now. I mean, they, they, you know, yeah, there was a blowout in Game 4, blowout in Game 2, blowout in Game 1. But the Games 3 and 5 could have gone either way. And, you know, it, this series really has been uh, overall quite entertaining and very, very competitive. Yeah, for sure. And even those, I mean, I wouldn't say like a – a five-run margin of victory is much of a blowout, but it, relative to to a lot of the games the tribe has been playing, yeah, that that's a blowout. And those leads got elevated late in the game. You know, Roberto Perez's late inning three-run shot, Jason Kipnis hit the three-run home run later in, in the game. So yeah, those even those games had lots of tense, tight moments. Uh, not not a lot of room for error. Uh, but Chris, this is a Cubs lineup that is just about first in, in every statistical category other than batting average 
a Cubs rotation that is first in batting opposition, batting average, ERA, quality starts. I mean, for the tribe to go up against this juggernaut and and to be up three two, I I am just I I am I'm shocked. And even though the tribe has defeated the Red Sox and, and the Blue Jays and they're underdogs for both of those games, I mean. This is the Cubs were by far the best team in the MLB this year, have the most talent, one of the deepest teams, and and the Indians are are dictating this series. I I think it's it's incredible. I'm not as shocked as you, Bob, to tell you the truth, um, because I do think that Cleveland needed to be up three to two in this position. I I honestly would not like Cleveland's chances if it if it were the other way around. And, and obviously you can say that about any teams, but but he, hear me out. I actually think the Cubs are better equipped to come back from this kind of a deficit than the Cleveland Indians because of their deep starting pitching. I mean, let's not forget Jake Arrieta, Kyle Hendricks are both Cy Young caliber pitchers that the Indians are going to have to beat one of them in order to finish things thing off. Now, they did beat Hendricks earlier. Arietta was phenomenal in Game 2, had a no-hitter, deep into the game uh, until Jason Kipnis broke it up and then broke up the shutout by scoring. So so the point is, I think the Indians really needed to win three of the first five, especially the two Kluber pitched, and then Tomlin got the off-Kluber game that the Indians desperately needed. Now it forces Chicago to beat Kluber. Even if Game 6 doesn't go the Indians' way, Chicago still has to beat Kluber in order to win this thing. And I like having that in the Indians' back pocket. So that's what gives me confidence here, is that even if the Indians can't get it done in Game 6, they've got their ace going in Game 7. And Kyle Hendricks, of between John Lester and Jake Arrieta, uh, of those three, I would rather face Hendricks. I know Hendricks has been great in the postseason. Don't get me wrong, he's having a fine year. But to me, Arrieta and Lester are their two best pitchers. I said this last week, and... I know Arietta had struggled in the postseason up until Game 2, but in Game 2, he showed why I think he is one of the three best pitchers in baseball right now. If, if, I, if I'm handicapping this series, I think it's going to go Cubs win Game 6, but the Indians come back and win Game 7. I mean, if we're going in predictions, uh, I'm sticking to my guns, man. I said Tribe in 6, they're coming home. Uh, you know, going. It was Lester versus Bauer, and the Cubs were able to squeak by three to two nothing about this series implies that the cubs have any momentum or have changed anything uh are able to do anything differently i th- i think the the tribe's gonna take it tomorrow uh on tuesday night i, I think that's gonna happen um yeah and i i agree with you i mean the the cubs have three quality top-notch arms this is certainly going to be a tough series uh Cubs certainly can take game six uh ESPN's predicted Cy Young stat which just compiles all the the pitching stats and and makes a predictor of who's going to win the Cy Young has Arietta Hendricks and Lester all in the top 10 in the National League um John Lester is gonna uh was ranked number two I think um the highest of the three but yeah they three quality arms they can certainly certainly shut down this Indians team that has uh struggled at times for sure uh but the, the Indians are definitely in a, in a fine position. And I think Josh Tomlin uh, has been clearly an unsung hero of, of the Indians. Kluber's getting a lot of attention, the entire bullpen now, not just Andrew Miller's getting a lot of attention. But without Tomlin, 
uh, performing the way he has uh, through all three rounds, I mean, the Indians would not be in this position at all. No, no. We said it going into the postseason that, you know, it can't just be Kluber in the bullpen. Between Bauer and Tomlin, one of them has to step up. And Tomlin has been that man. He has pitched outstanding every time he's been on the mound. He was outstanding on the road against Boston, closing out the Red Sox. He was outstanding in Game 2 against Toronto. He was outstanding in that Game 3 against Chicago, which turned into a shutout. Now, the bullpen helped a lot because he was pulled a little early. I think that was to keep his pitch count really low um, because he was coming back for a double start on short rest. So, uh, yes, Josh Tomlin, I think, has been the ultimate X-factor more so than Andrew Miller, more so than Cody Allen, just because you know, in order to get to the bullpen, your starters have to be effective. You saw when Bauer started that bullpen isn't as much of a weapon when you're losing the game. And, and in order for that bullpen to be effective, you have to have another guy not named Kluber get you to get that bridge to the pen. So Tomlin has stepped up. And, and I, I, Bob, I wouldn't be surprised if they won game six. I'm not saying that they have no chance at winning game six. But what I saw out of Arietta in game two, I, I do think it's going to be very tough to beat him. I think that with Kluber on the mound in Game 7, I think they will win that game and ultimately win this thing in 7. But I certainly hope they win it in 6 because because I don't think my heart could take a Game 7. Oh, yeah. Uh, man, my th- these baseball games are a slow burn uh, on my heart, and I can just feel the ages... The years just tick off in my life as I sit and watch, you know, a three-hour baseball game. Um, so yeah, I, I I don't know. I, Jake Arrieta, yeah, was throwing that no hitter. Um, I it wasn't like a a, a if anyone who who carries a no hitter that deep into the game is pitching really well. But I have faith, and I don't think Arrieta. He is a very talented pitcher, one of the best, has one of the best, most talent in the game. But I think that um, he has struggled with consistency this year. And so that might bode well that he got the no hitter out or got that gem out early. And, and we might see a different Jake Arrieta on, on Tuesday night. Um, so that, Just a that's slight what correction, I'm, uh, though. Kind of I kind of disagree that he struggled with consistency. He struggled consistency in the postseason, but... The guy has won 40 games over two years. And yeah, his 310 ERA in 2016 was a little high compared to his 177 ERA in 2015. But I still think he is a very. I think he's consistent. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to argue with you, but he had an extremely low ERA for the first two months of the season. And if you remove April and May, I think his ERA is closer to four for the year. So, I mean, I get it. He, he's really good, and I'm not going to argue about it, but he, he's not as good as his name implies for, from last year. I think he's definitely beatable for next year, or, or for, for game six for sure. Um, but, Chris, I mean, let's just talk about the, the Chicago Cubs team has a payroll of $180 million. The Indians have a payroll of about – a little over a hundred million. If you if you add all the guys, their twenty five man payroll is, is around eighty million dollars. Um, Jason Hayward uh, didn't start the first three games. That's a twenty one million dollar man to get to twenty one million dollars uh, on the Indians payroll. You'd have to add up the top three earners in, in Kipnis, Napoli, and Santana to to get to that uh, amount of money. I mean, th- these two teams are not evenly matched. You got you got Chris Bryant. 
going to win that MVP. John Lester is probably going to finish second to Max Scherzer. Joe Madden's probably going to win uh, manager of the year. I mean, any way you spin it, they're not evenly matched. But if you came into a World Series game not knowing anything about baseball, you would walk away thinking that the Cubs are the underdogs. Uh, yeah, I mean, the talk has been nonstop about Chicago. I mean, you would think that they are the ones who are trying to overcome the juggernaut Cleveland Indians. And, and it's just not the case. I mean, the, the Cubs are the team that should be up 3-2 to two right now. I mean, this team, by the numbers, by the stats, statistically, uh, you know, it was the dominant team in baseball. Um, and the Indians had a strong year, but it, they weren't a dominant team. I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, the, the 14-game winning streak in June was probably their most dominant moment. But other than that, there was a lot of weeks of, hey, we're 6-1. and one. Now we're 1-6. and six. I mean, for, for April and May, you go back through our podcast, we, we were like every other week it was we were talking about a different team <laughs> because the Cleveland Indians were just, you know, kind of up and down yeah. until that 14-game winning streak there. But, but you're right, Bob. I mean, all the focus has been on the Cubs as far as, you know, the talk has been concerned. And, and I don't like to point this finger because I, I – as a fan who has a stake in the outcome, I think every fan base kind of feels this way when they get to this stage that, that the announcers or the national coverage kind of disrespects them. But, but just look, if you listen to it, I mean, the first thing Joe Buck said to start off Game 5 was, well, the key story of this World Series here is the Cubs' bats just have not been able to do anything. And it's like, well, no... Right. The key story of this World Series is the Cleveland Indians pitching has prevented them from doing anything, and they're up three to one. I mean, why why are we not leading with the winning team here, man? Like, let's give this team some credit. It's not like it was a two-two series or anything like that. I mean, the Indians took a commanding lead in this series, and you're absolutely right. The Cubs are being painted as the darling that is trying to pull this off. But even though from his even though with history they're an underdog. This year, they're the favorites. They're the king, and they're the Goliath that's supposed to win this series. Yeah, it it, it really should be easy for them, and I think if it were against any other team, it, it would be easy, but uh, not with these Indians. They're, they're so resilient, and I just think it's really frustrating to watch a whole series and to not get your team doesn't get like uh close to, to an even amount of screen time it, it it very much frustrates me and being um away from cleveland not in the city uh, of the indians I, I can tell you everyone is a cubs fan right now <laughs> and i can't really have any conversation with somebody that is actively watching baseball because um for whatever reason i i'm the villain for being an indians fan <laughs> so it, it's very weird um and very frustrating, but um, all the Indians have to do is win one more game, and uh, we don't have to listen to them talk about the Cubs anymore. Yeah, it's like uh, Al Davis said, just win, baby. That's all you got to do. Indians step up, win one more game, they're champions, and uh, hopefully this time around all the talk will be on them. That that annoyed me too after the Indians eliminated Boston. All the I think ESPN led with 30 minutes of David Ortiz and the Red Sox kind of glossed over the fact that they lost. Yeah. You know, it, it has been annoying because but that's what happens when you face teams like Boston and the Cubs. You know, it's going to be that way. They're darlings. They're going to get that kind of attention. 
all you can do is win. Yeah, for for sure. They're naturally going to get the attention, but the the odd thing about this is that not only are they getting the attention, but the they are being painted as the Cubs are being painted as the underdog, the the David in the situation where it's that's far from the truth. So it's it's been very bizarre watching this world series uh from the indians perspective the other big thing that's going to change now is uh schwarber's back in the lineup i'm gonna i'm gonna put fox on mute when uh he get comes to the plate <laughs> i can't i can't hear them talk about him i mean it, all things aside kyle schwarber's story is a fantastic story I, I i unbiasedly i will admit that the man coming back from his injury to do what he did in the first two games was, quite frankly, a fantastic story. And he's from Ohio. I mean, the guy's the guy's an Ohio guy. So you know, I can't get irked at him too much because you know, it's not his fault that everyone's talking about him. But yeah, I'm not mad at him. Yeah, I mean, but it's like the, the there is there became a very big infatuation with him. And that, that you know you, you remember in 2008, Josh Josh Hamilton uh, had that amazing home run derby. And it was a great story, but in a matter of moments, it was beaten to death to the point that by the time it got to the final, I was cheering for the other guy <laughs> just to yeah. get people to stop talking about him. And you know, and, and it stunk because his story was fantastic. I mean, obviously, he still ultimately went on to struggle with those demons as of addiction later on in his career. But but in that moment, all that he overcame to have that moment was was fantastic and it should have been a great story but it just got beaten to death and that that's what's happening with Kyle Schwarber here it's a great story but it's just getting beaten to death and I, I just think that uh you know hopefully it, it doesn't get as much I mean you know it's going to get talked about a ton because now that he's back oh, in the lineup sure. every time he comes up it's it's just going to be a ton of talk yeah I, I did find it peculiar that uh, of the three games he only got one at bat I thought that we would for sure see him every night. And, you know, I understand um, in that middle game, the Indians eventually pushed that lead out. So far, you know, it's not it's not really relevant to put him in. But in those uh, game games five and games three, uh, or excuse me, in, in game five, I, I'm kind of surprised that he didn't get to see the plate and, and get to see some pitches. So it'll be interesting to see him back in the plate um, and uh, that conversation to start again. Uh, Chris, who are looking like the locks for MVP if it goes one way or the other for you? The locks? I don't think there's a lock uh, on the Indian side. I, I honestly don't know who would win if Cleveland won. I think the early favorites are Francisco Lindor or Corey Kluber with probably the slight edge to Corey Kluber. If it goes seven and Kluber pitches three wins, no doubt. Enough said. Nail in the coffin. He's winning it. Done deal. If the Indians win in six and Lindor has a big offensive game, that could swing the table that way as well. But I think for the Indians, it's between those two. Because as great as the bullpen has been, I do think that Corey Kluber has been better and more of a reason why the Indians are in their position than the bullpen. Not to take anything away from the bullpen. I'm not saying that at all. But if you're asking me to pick one, I would pick Corey Kluber and then offensively, Lindor has been the catalyst for the Cleveland Indians. Um, I do think he needs one big game to catch Kluber, though, in my rankings. And I think that if the Indians go to seven and win in seven, 
it's going to be almost impossible to top a guy who started three games in the World Series for MVP. Yeah, definitely. I think um, Corey Kluber has it if the Indians win this thing in seven games. Like you said, if they win tomorrow and you know what if Andrew Miller comes out and pitches two and two thirds innings? You don't you don't think that he is likely to, to win that award if that happens? Maybe. I, I mean, maybe if, if Andrew Miller has a big game six, maybe. But to me, maybe I'm old school here. I mean, because because the reason he won it in the ALCS is Corey Kluber lost his second start. I, I don't know if Kluber. I, I'm not sure who technically got the wins and everything here. Both time Kluber was on the mound, the Indians won. So, so the point I'm making here is, you know, you have a guy in Kluber who pitched twice and produced, you know, 50% of the victories through his starts. I think that that is more important to me than a reliever. And I'm not saying Andrew Miller's an ordinary reliever, but you're asking me to pick one. I would, I would give it to Kluber. Yeah, for, for sure. I, again, I think if Kluber gets that, that's third start it, it's his for sure i think tomorrow if miller does come out for for two innings that's going to give him over eight innings in the world series he's going to appear in every single win it, assuming the tribe wins tomorrow um I, I think he he might he might win that award um but we will have to see that's a little presumptive of us to to predict an early favorite for the mvp but uh, we're feeling good right now wouldn't you say hey anytime you're talking about mvp for a team uh it means your team's winning because they rarely if ever, give it to a team on the losing team. The Cubs, I think, I don't know who would win it on the Cubs. I don't think anyone has really distanced themselves. I think if the Cubs come back, the winner of the MVP will have had signature moments in games to come. I don't think in the first five games anyone from the Cubs have done anything. But I do think Schwarber and Jake Arrieta have positioned themselves to win the MVP. Because if Jake Arrieta throws a lockdown game six like he did game two, that uh, both on the road, that is definitely going to put him in position to win it. But I think that if it goes to seven and the Cubs come all the way back, it's going to be someone who steps up in a signature Game Seven moment. And I, I, I don't know who it would be. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. I think Schwarber can can definitely make his case uh, if they end up winning it, seeing as how he didn't appear in uh, two of those uh, in those losses in, in Chicago, or was, or was it irrelevant uh, due to being the DH. Um, and if he has a big game six and seven, that's definitely the case. Um, and then Arietta, like you said, I think he, as of right now, you just kind of have to put him in front as the favorite because of the gem he threw in game two and the position that he's in for game six. Yeah, I think the, those two and then any position player that wants to show up for the Cubs can uh, definitely uh, enter the ring of contention to be MVP because uh, as of right now, nobody in that lineup has really stepped up. Late breaking addition is Aronis Chapman, who pitched eight innings to close out game five, kind of like Andrew Miller for the Indians, kind of their super reliever. If he has, you know, multiple innings in game six and seven, that could also put his hat in the ring as well. Um, but but ultimately, it's hard to predict the Cubs because, like, like I've said before, um, nobody has stood out. And when you're not winning the series, it's hard to stand out. So I think if they were to come all the way back, the MVP moments are, go- are still to come for whoever would win it from their team yeah definitely well we will certainly wrap up the world series in next week's podcast uh hopefully it is some good news uh and hopefully it uh we'll already be able to plan for that podcast uh at the end of tomorrow night um but moving on from world series hopeful champion to 
0 and 16 hopeful the Cleveland Browns uh actually we're not going to lead in with just how terribly the Browns played on Sunday uh we will get to that but um kind of some shocking news today trading a compensatory third round draft pick to the New England Patriots for uh Pro Bowl linebacker Jamie Collins uh I had to read that byline a couple times today because I was in shock that both parties were willing to make this move. For the Browns, it seems like a why not no brainer. Uh, they have draft picks for days, but for the Patriots, trading away uh, one of their probably their best linebacker uh, in a uh, at a depleted position for them in the hunt for a Super Bowl, it, it, it was a head scratcher. Chris, what what are you making of this move? Chalk this up to lawyer Malloy. Chandler Jones and the countless other head-scratching last-minute trades Bill Belichick has made over the course of his dominance of the NFL. So on the surface, it looks like the Browns got a pretty good deal. I want to know what's up here because if this were any other team, I'd be like super excited. And it's not that I'm not super excited because I think Jamie Collins is a really good linebacker and certainly someone the Browns could use because, my goodness, they're 0-8. That says it all. But they're trading with a team that's done this so many times. It just gives me pause, and it makes me think, what's up here? But here's why I like the trade. Um, in, instead of signing Jamie Collins to an exorbitant deal in the offseason and not having him in your system at all, the Browns give up a projected third-round compensatory pick for an eight-game trial run on one of the best free agents on the market. If it works, the Browns have enough cap space to certainly make him a long-term part of this team, and that would be great because we could use someone with Jamie Collins' talent. If it doesn't work, they had an eight-game trial run to see it firsthand, and they can let him go and sign a big contract elsewhere, and guess what? They'll probably get a third-round compensatory pick in 2018. So all they've really done here is deferred compensation. If it works out, they've turned a third-round compensatory pick into Jamie Collins, which is awesome. And if it doesn't work out, they have just delayed their receiving that pick for essentially one year. Now, I know things could project differently, whatever. In all likelihood, that is how it will go down. I I don't mind the move at all because certainly they could use the talent boost. Certainly they could use a cornerstone piece to build around. And if it doesn't work out, all you're doing is delaying a draft pick by one year, essentially. Yeah, all very good points. Uh, the Browns still assuming, let's just assume that they have that number one pick. They're going to have five picks in the first 65 picks in the 2017 NFL draft. That's a pick. The The Browns will be picking every 13 picks for the first uh, two rounds in the start of the third. So they can uh, make do with trading away at end of the round, end of the third round pick to, to the Patriots. Uh, interestingly, this is the... Th- really the third deal the Browns have done with the Patriots in, in the last few months, trading away Barkevius Mingo, claiming Jonathan Cooper off of waivers from the Patriots and now getting Jamie Collins from the Patriots. I don't know if they just have a good rapport or the Browns are just suckers for the Patriots right now. I, I'm assuming the latter just because of the Patriots track record and the Browns track record. But um, Jamie Collins is the best player on this Browns defense already. I mean, Joe Hayden's been, <laughs> I mean, Joe Hayden is banged up and has has been inconsistent this year. Uh, Danny Shelton is emerging, but is certainly not on the level of Jamie Collins. He's athletic, can play 
inside and outside. He can rush. He can uh, it is probably one of the better defense uh, pass defenders uh, at the linebacker position. Pro Football Focus has him rated uh, in 2016 as the sixth best linebacker in all of the NFL. So the Browns got a stud. Now that sounds awesome and reads really well, but he's coming from the Patriots and you've just rattled off some of those famous guys that they've let go. You have to be looking at him with a weary eye and just thinking, is he hurt? Is there an off field issue? Does he want a $20 million a year contract or something? I mean, there, there has to be something. And I think we're all very skeptical, but if Jamie Collins is the Jamie Collins of this of the first half of this season, the, the Browns got a huge upgrade and, and could potentially uh, have the cornerstone in their defense for you, for the few years to come. They, they could potentially even franchise tag him next year to, to extend that uh, uh, window as well. Uh, just a little trivia, the Jonathan Cooper uh, that the – Browns claim from the Patriots that was the player the Patriots got for Chandler Jones they also got a second round pick don't right. worry but that's just kind of you know one of those little circle of life kind of things um but no I agree I mean look you said it best Jamie Collins is already the best player on the Browns defense he is better than anyone they have uh save for a 100% healthy Joe Hayden but we all know Joe Hayden is not 100%. He's, he, he got hurt last year. It, it's still lingering. I'm not saying he's not healthy, but I don't think he was what he was before the injury just yet. So Jamie Collins is a must-have at, at a position that they need to address, that they've needed to address for a long time. Linebacker has been just as much of a yeah. haunting this team as the quarterback position. I mean, they have not been able to stop the run ever. They never rarely get to the passer. Uh, this is a much-needed veteran to help this team develop. And, and if he sticks and if he works out, now you've got all-pro talent with veteran experience that these young guys can look to and learn from. Because there are guys emerging. You mentioned Danny Shelton on this defense. They need someone who knows how to win. And the Patriots know how to win better than anyone over the last you know decade and a half or so. If this works out, it's always good to inject quality talent into your organization. So, And, and I like the fact that he's not expensive right now. It's an eight-game rental. You mentioned the franchise tag. That's certainly an option extended into uh, a 24-game rental. Uh, the fact of the matter is I can only see upside for the Browns, and they didn't really give up really anything at all. Because if you can turn a comp pick into an all-pro linebacker, like Jamie Collins, uh, I don't think you're going to find that in the compensatory round. I'm just going to play the odds there. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's definitely a win for the Browns. Now, the Patriots. I mean, Chris, what what do you think was their thought behind this? They just wanted to get some value for him before he asks for a huge contract extension that they're not going to give. I honestly have no idea. I, I I think that they that that's the driving force is that they want to get value before his huge contract extension. I have been reading that he's been asking for Von Miller money uh, behind the scenes. Uh, I don't know how much of those are 100% true because a lot of times things get leaked, as we see with Kevin Love, by parties that have a stake in the outcome, let's just say that. So I don't know how much of those reports are 100% true. I'm not questioning the reporter, questioning the source of the information. All that aside, getting back to what the Patriots might be thinking here, 
I, I don't know. I, I honestly do not know because, you know, when Bill Belichick cut Lawyer Malloy the day before the season started, I, I think everyone lost their minds. I mean, Lawyer Malloy was way more the heart and soul of the Patriots' defense than Jamie Collins was. And to cut him after the fourth preseason game in the days leading up to week one and then have him go to Buffalo and bite you in the butt week one, I think it was a 31 to nothing win. And then the Patriots, all they did was lose one more game the rest of the year and win the Super Bowl. So the Patriots have a track record of doing these kind of moves. Whatever the motivation is, there's either a player on the depth chart that Bill Belichick wants to get more time for. Um, It's certainly the compensation before he signs a big contract is a big part of it, but it can't be the driving force because if he signs that big contract, they're going to get a draft pick of about the same value in 2018. And if you're the Patriots, what's the difference when you're playing for a Super Bowl now? So whatever the reason is, it's not just a draft pick. There's something there. there. There's either a disconnect between him and the team or there's somebody else on that depth chart that Bill Belichick wants to play more, and he figures, why not just get something for Jamie Collins now so I can free up space to play some of the guys I want to play? I I have no idea what the reason is. As we watch the Patriots season unfold, I'm sure it will become more clear. Yeah, very bizarre. I mean, you know who that guy is, right? It's not Mingo. (laughs) I mean, who else could it be? I mean, how perfect, what, what other situation would it be? I mean, this is Belichick just punking the Browns, giving us washed up Jamie Collins because he's going to start Barkevius Mingo, who's going to be the next Von Miller. I mean, that's just, that's a Browns thing that's going to happen. Rain it in there, Bob. Okay, Von Miller (laughs) certainly could have success with the Patriots. I'm not ruling that out. I mean, excuse me, not Von Miller. Of course Von Miller could. Barkevius Mingo certainly could have success with the Patriots. Uh, But I don't think even in the best of best case scenarios, Barkevius Mingo will be Von Miller, even in the Patriots. I know. Yeah. I, 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 I'm teasing. I don't, I don't rightfully believe that, but I mean, that, that is a, is a potential Browns move to, to happen. Uh, don't rule it out. <laughs> hey man, Jabal Sheard is having good years up in new England. So Bill Belichick knows how to get the most out of guys. Mingo does have ability it's just not clicking. I, I don't know. I, I don't know who the player is. It could be Mingo. It could be someone else. But I think that that is more the reason than just getting compensation for him because they would have gotten it anyway, even if he signed a big contract in the offseason. We will see, but um, the Browns certainly got better. I mean, how could they not in adding a guy like him? So we will definitely have to see. Um, Chris, what, what happened on Sunday? Same old Browns. Get a big-time halftime lead. Team adjusts. And this talent, the team is young, and it's hard for them to make those adjustments right now because of the inexperience. I honestly think that that's what it's coming down to, is that multiple times this year, we've seen it over and over and over again. They get a first-half lead, they look like they're in good position, and then they lose in the second half. I mean, adjustments get made. I I don't think it's all coaching, because I think Hugh Jackson is a good coach. I think it's more that this team has gone to ground zero They're building with a ton of young guys, and it is not easy to win in the NFL when you are relying on so many young players and you have an offensive line that has more holes than the Titanic right now. Other than Joe Thomas, nobody should feel safe on that offensive line because it's just not a good unit right now. And when you don't have an offensive line, uh, you're not going to be in many games. And as you see, the record speaks for itself. Yeah, I think at halftime, the Browns had like an 83% chance of winning that game. 
Um, I think uh, that that formula can apply to 31 teams. It, it can apply for the Browns. They they need to devise a, a Cleveland Browns win percentage formula, which I think is like uh, spotting them 35 points or more at, at the half. Because I mean, it's ridiculous how they can just they just find ways to blow leads. And I, I get I get the youth movement, man. But uh, the 38 year old did not look too hot in the second half. Josh McCowan throwing those two interceptions. Uh, making some 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 poor plays but again he's only as good as the the youth around him as as you were describing him yeah just another another uh day at the at the factory yeah i can devise a cleveland browns win percentage calculator right now just keep it at a flat five percent done (laughs) five percent yeah at any point in the game just keep it at five percent espn come on bring it on man did them a solid. I, th- I think, uh, it, you know, they had a 13-point lead at the half. I think if they had a 13-point lead with two minutes left, I'd give it to them. 5%. Uh, even even that, I don't know. <laughs> That's less than two touchdowns. I don't I wouldn't. I actually wouldn't bet against that. Um, yeah, they just find ways to lose. Definitely a youth movement. Who stuck out? I mean, give us give us a bright spot from, for, from Sunday. I, I liked Josh McCown's first half. Now, it's hard to say he stood out, but the offense definitely looked better with him back most of the game uh three of the last four drives not counting the drive that they got their garbage touchdown though uh McCown really had some bad throws he overshot Terrell Pryor the fourth to last drive which led to a Jets touchdown that was a third down play that led to a punt and a Jets touchdown uh then after that the two back-to-back interceptions that really just iced it um so you know McCown and 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 to his credit in the the press conference afterwards uh he owned every bit of it i mean you want to know why he sticks around in the nfl it's because you can learn a lot by playing with josh mccown you know the guy is tough and the guy does not make any excuses he owns it he doesn't throw anyone under the bus he said terrell Pryor ran the right route uh even though it looked like he may have stopped a little bit uh, you know, he he said all the right things. He owned it. I give him all the credit in the world because I, I do think with him back under center, uh, the Browns definitely have uh, a better chance to win. The long term, though, I, I don't know if if I want to see him play the rest of the year if Cody Kessler's healthy. Yeah, I I, I get that, and I think we'll um we're we're gonna have that debate on our football Fridays between McCallan and Kessler, but McCallan certainly does look more capable right now of leading the offense and um, has shown some flashes. I just think, you know, everything around him is crumbling and he, he himself is not going able to carry a team, um, let alone a, a, a team is so devoid of talent and leadership in in the Browns. So um, he definitely leaves it all out there, but um you know, we, we need more. We need a defense that can actually pr- protect, uh, you know, guard against the pass and, and be competent against the run. And, and we don't have either of those. So um, we will continue to discuss the Browns every week um, and we will preview their, their next matchup on our Football Fridays bonus podcast that we post every Friday. So please check that out. Um, but moving to some... One quick thing before okay. we move. Uh, Cody Kessler has been cleared to return and Corey Coleman has also been cleared to return to practice. So uh, some good news on the injury go. front for Cleveland. I uh, just wanted to get there in there real quick. But like you said, we will talk more about that on our bonus podcast. Yeah, certainly. So moving to the college ranks of football, um, 
the landscape is shifting a little bit. Had some some big wins uh, over the week. Um, getting an idea of who are the true playoff contenders. Let, let's lead with uh, Ohio State, though. Um, a, a competitive win uh, against Northwestern. Um, granted, a, a very uh, hot team in Northwestern, but still an unranked team. Um, Chris only went in by four at home uh, coming off of that loss uh, at Penn State. Uh, this is uh, the, the third week in a row now, fourth week in a row, really, that the, the Buckeyes have uh, shown some some cracks in their armor. Um, how concerned are you right now? Extremely, because the Buckeyes cannot pass the ball. Um, a lot of the successful pass plays are very short design plays. They, they don't, they're not able to get the deep ball going, and teams are hip to it, and they are just playing that, that run option that they like to run. So... Oh, JT Barrett is, is I think, running the ball a little bit too much. Um, I think he, he needs to develop. that. I mean, he needs to find some way to get the ball downfield a little bit more. I ultimately think that's the, that's the struggle. I mean, it started with Indiana. They struggled there. Wisconsin, you can understand. But Penn State and, and now Northwestern, uh, these guys ha- have really dared Ohio State to throw it downfield, and they're just not able to do it. Yeah, when, when you take that away and when you start keying in – you know, spying on Barrett, um, the Buckeyes offense definitely looks beatable. And I think that is definitely on some coaching. I think Barrett needs to regain some of the flash he showed earlier in the year where he's able to push the the ball to the outside and, and, and get it to some of his deep threats. Um, I, I do think a little of that is uh, the offensive line has struggled a little bit in, in the past couple of games, ceding pressure to JT Barrett. And I think there there are lots of areas where individually they can grow and, and develop that passing game. But it's certainly, I think teams are, their opponents are learning from each other and are, are keying in on that. And, you know, the closer and closer we get to that Michigan matchup, those guys are, are definitely fast enough and strong enough to, to, to slow that run option down to a halt. So JT Bear is going to need to to regain his mojo and learn how to throw it uh, down the field uh, quickly. Michigan matchup. I'm worried about this Nebraska matchup coming up that we'll also be previewing it on football yep. Fridays here. Man, that, they're number nine in the nation and played Wisconsin very tough. Oh, yeah. Very very, very good point. Um, yeah, we, we will definitely talk about that uh, on our Friday podcast as well. Um, apologies for, for overlooking them, but um, – yeah, there there are some some questions and, and, and some concerns. Um, and again, we will preview that matchup uh, uh, against Nebraska this Friday. Um, all right, but zooming out to uh, to the weekend uh, on Saturday, Baylor, West Virginia, both dropping uh, a couple teams, uh, surviving some scares uh, that that were ranked in the top ten. Chris, what 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 do you want to talk about? Well, the bottom line is three undefeateds, Nebraska. Baylor and West Virginia all getting their first loss. Now, we mentioned Nebraska was a very close loss against a very good Wisconsin team. They're still in the top 10, but Baylor and West Virginia both losing. That is not good for the Big 12, and I've been saying it all along. Don't sleep on Oklahoma. They are undefeated in that conference. They're 6-2. and two. Their only losses in the non-conference. Uh, you know, it would not surprise me if Oklahoma wins that league, and that would be great news for Ohio State because that would be by far Probably the best non-conference win in all of college football if the Sooners, Sooners won out and were 9-0 and as Big 12 champs. So uh, certainly very possible there. But, but the Baylor-West Virginia double whammy on Saturday 
really opens. I think it's going to be those four power. The other four power five are probably going to send the four teams that ultimately sit in the college football playoff. I think the college football playoff has very, very clear right now. Obviously, upsets could shake it up, but the ACC, SEC, Pac-12, and uh, Big Ten all kind of in control of those four spots right now. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you look at the top four, and uh, all four of those conferences would be represented uh, should should those uh, rankings hold out. Um, Pac-12 seems the more, most uh, weak right now with, with Washington, um, but uh, yeah, the, the, the Big 12 uh, definitely... Uh, having some struggles right now and, and uh, might be on the outside looking in for uh, two of the three years of the playoff, which will be very interesting to see uh, how they pivot to, to uh, combat that um, very quietly though. I mean, looking at, at some of these teams that are, that are rising in the rankings, uh, Auburn and LSU are, are climbing back. Both of those teams are on Alabama schedules. Um, Auburn at 11 um, earlier in the year, I thought Gus Malzahn might be on his way out. Everyone left Auburn for dead. I mean, everyone. I mean, Gus Malzahn went from being the guy who was going to the NFL to the guy who was going to be at a pink slip. I mean, Auburn was buried seven times over uh, before the league play even begun, and now they're six and two, number eleven in the nation. Um, you know, it, it's been one heck of a turnaround. Same with LSU. Ever since uh, firing Les Miles, they've been you know doing well. Um, you can say what you want about the firing of Les Miles, but at the end of the day, LSU has gotten things turned around. Uh, one other observation I just made, Bob, you look at the top 11, four Big Ten teams, four SEC teams, and then the only other Power 5 conference with multiple teams is the ACC, Clemson, and Louisville. That's pretty insane. I never would have thought four Big Ten teams would be in the top, well, nine. <laughs> that's that's kind of crazy. Yeah, for sure. I, I especially the Michigan state is unranked right now. I, you know, you figured that maybe uh, the big 10 would have those three in the top in Michigan, Ohio state and Michigan state, but Wisconsin, Nebraska have certainly been surprises and have been teams that uh, have been, uh, have played well uh, in, in some big games and are deserving of those rankings. So yeah, it, it's been very interesting. I, I think it's uh, pretty surprising that not only is Washington the fourth team, but that that is the only PAC 12 team, uh, remotely in, in the top 10. I think you have to go all the way down to Utah to find the next one. Yeah, you got Utah, Colorado, and Washington State. Who had those three rounding out the Pac-12's uh, top 25? Not me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, there have been some teams that have fallen completely off the map. I mean, Tennessee losing to South Carolina this week. Uh, Jalen Hurd's going to transfer midseason. Uh, their season has just fallen completely apart. Stanford, Notre Dame, Michigan State, all of these were top 10 teams all vying for a playoff spot, and they're all unranked right now. I think we both had Stanford in our playoffs, and I had uh, Christian McCaffrey winning the Heisman in our preseason. So, uh, yeah, sometimes uh, sometimes you mess up, I guess. Oh, well, that, that is the nature of uh, trying to predict college football for sure. Um, can't go wrong with a couple things in, in Alabama and Ohio State, but once you put your limb out for anybody else uh, – you're probably going to be wrong. All right, well, moving on from uh, college football again, we will be previewing Ohio State versus Nebraska in our Football Fridays podcast this week. Uh, let's just peek in on those Cleveland Cavs. Uh, three games in, they're 3-0. and 
uh, opening the season well. I, I was really glad they were able to win uh, in such a handed way against those Knicks, raising the championship banner, not spoiling that at all. Um, Chris, just a quick thought on the three and zero start by the Cavs. Yeah, I'm glad they won that opening game too because it's like I don't like New York Knicks, and then they transplanted like the two or three guys from the Chicago Bulls. I really don't like onto that team, so it's like a zombie team of guys I really don't like. So I'm really glad that they didn't spoil the Cavs banner raising ceremony. But you know what? Being three and zero in the NBA, it's like. It's like talking about the Indians if they were three and zero in April. I mean, it's it's such a drop in the ocean right now. Um, you know, we've seen it over the years of LeBron James ever since he left Cleveland. Um, the regular season doesn't matter to him as much. I don't think the Cavs are going to, you know, try to win. Try they're not going to go all out in the regular season. They, there's a lot of energy right now, but I do think that things are going to taper off. And great start, but but it's a long year for sure. I, I think. Uh if you can take anything away, um, they they look like the Cavs of last year, which is great. You know, the championship team, they're back. They they are playing the same kind of basketball they were playing. That's awesome. Hopefully, they can stay healthy through the season. Um, I don't. The Knicks are too bad for me to care and not like them. I mean, they they're just they are what they are. Um, and I, we've talked about it a little bit. You know, Derek, Derek Rose and Joachim Noah does not make them a better team. So I don't really invest a whole lot of time hating on them because uh, they are not going to be in the playoffs this year either. No. I, I I think it's just funny to see the Knicks year after year fall in their face. Yeah, try and take the quick corner around um, and try and build a team around Carmelo Anthony, but we can <laughs> talk about that a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, that that is a subject for another podcast. Uh, we've filled this one up to the brink with all the World Series talk and the big uh, trade that the Browns made. Uh, so lots of lots of stuff in there, but unfortunately our time is up for this week. Uh, hopefully next week we will be talking about the World Series without tears streaming down our face. Or if they do stream down our face, they are tears of joy and not tears of epic sadness. But that'll have to wait until Monday. Uh, you know, Thank you all for listening to Clay Talk. You can subscribe to our podcast via iTunes by searching Fenley Road Sports, or you could go to FenleyRoadSports.com, click on the little iTunes button, and we'll take you right there. Just hit subscribe, and it's really quick and easy. You could also subscribe, follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Just search Fenley Road Sports. Uh, we do appreciate your support. We hope you come back next week. We hope we're optimistic and excited and happy next week because we're celebrating another championship. But until then... Come on, Tribe. Bring it home. Let's go. All right. I'll see you, Chris. Go, Tribe. Take it easy, Bob.